We need to start this morning with a little different kind of introduction. If you're looking at your copy of the scriptures, you might have a notation or a footnote or brackets or something uh, of the passage that we're going to look at today. So I want to talk about that just a little first. From the standpoint of the number of manuscripts and the age of those manuscripts, the New Testament scriptures are the best attested ancient documents in the world by far. At this point, we found over 5,600 manuscripts. A manuscript is just a handwritten copy of the Scriptures. That's what manuscript means, handwritten. That includes fragments and some whole collections as well. The ancient document in second place for the number of surviving manuscripts is actually Homer's Iliad, 650 copies. That gives you some idea of the difference. When we say first place, best attested, we're talking way out in front. The earliest New Testament manuscript fragment is actually from the Gospel of John, John 18, and dates to A.D. 125, which would place it only some 30 years after John the Apostle wrote the original. A complete set of New Testament manuscripts and another nearly complete set date back to A.D. 350, so the mid-300s. And since the New Testament was written between A.D. 48 and A.D. 95 during that first century, these complete sets were copied some 250 to 300 years after the dates of the originals. By comparison, the second-place ancient document in terms of age and proximity to the original writing is one fragment from... You say Libby or Livy? I never asked him how to pronounce his name. Anybody know? Okay, then I'll just pretend like I know. Um, Livy's history of Rome uh, dating 300 to 400 years after the original. One fragment 300 to 400 years later. When we compare the New Testament Greek manuscripts, there are no major doctrines missing from any of them. The differences amount to no more than 2% of the readings. What most of those are, are, with most of those, it's, it's fairly easy to identify what the original likely was by comparing the differences. Just as if we were to do an experiment and we all sat down and we copied the Gospel of John today. That would be our project today. Some of you would misspell a word here and there. You might even leave out a word or leave out a line or put some words backwards. But not everybody would make the same mistake at the same time. And so we would look at all the copies and we'd be able to tell, okay, this was the original reading. The study of comparing and analyzing manuscripts is called textual criticism. Textual criticism. It's not the science of criticizing the text, but of analyzing the different readings that the different copies have to determine what was the most likely the original reading. The Greek Testament that I use has the manuscript evidence in the footnotes to vindicate what the editors chose as the preferred reading. The King James translators, for instance, included alternate readings in their margin just to make sure that there was a backup 
Because as they made their choice as to which reading they thought was best, they knew it was possible sometimes that another one of the reading was as actually to be preferred, and they didn't want to lose that. So they put it in the margin, and they defend their doing so in their preface to the reader. By the way, if you want to know something about translation philosophy, it's probably one of the best uh, presentations of translation philosophy that you would find. It's called The Translators to the Readers. Cambridge Bible still have it in their copies. I wish all versions, all printings of the King James had it because it would have saved a whole lot of confusion over the last 50 years with the King James only controversy. I say all this because our text this morning is one of two paragraphs in the New Testament that we don't find in the oldest surviving manuscripts. Now, it's it's important for us to say the oldest surviving manuscripts because they're not necessarily the oldest manuscripts, right? Because the originals were the oldest. Um, other, the other one is the long ending of Mark. Nevertheless, John 8, 1 through 11 is considered an authentic account from the life of Jesus. You remember those full, the full um, collection of New Testament writings was from the mid-300s. Well, Ambrose, Augustine, and Jerome lived during that period and they refer to this passage. Okay, so let that sink in. We don't have a manuscript that dates there, but we have well-known preachers, theologians referring to it. We have manuscripts from the 6th century, so the mid-500s that include it. So in my Metzger's Greek New Testament, they have it double-bracketed. That doesn't mean double-doubtful, okay? This is the explanation for double-brackets. They enclose passages which are regarded as later additions to the text, but which are of evident antiquity and importance. Some think this account is out of order chronologically, that it's possibly an event from the Passion Week. It occurred some six months later, and that may be why there are a few manuscripts that actually place it at the end of Luke 21. All this said, The reason John 8, 1 through 11 is included in our Bibles is that it shows evidence of being an actual verified event in the life of Christ, wherever it fits in the chronology of his ministry. Translators are conscientious enough that they want you to know that it exists, in case it is actually part of John's original gospel. Further, what the passage presents is consistent with biblical doctrine. To leave it out altogether would do injustice to its antiquity and to what it teaches. And for these reasons, I am preaching it this morning. As I worked on it this week, I found that what we find here fits very well into what John has been highlighting regarding the contrast between Jesus and the influential religious leaders who opposed him. So follow with me as I read John 8, 1 through 11. The end of chapter 7, it said, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. They continued to ask him, 
And he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The key concern in this section is conscience and how the gospel of Jesus deals with it. In verses 1 through 6, we see seared consciences, a seared conscience among these religious leaders. In verses 7 through 9, we see guilty conscience. In verses 10 and 11, a cleared conscience. Consider with me first the seared conscience that is evidenced by these accusers. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. I want you to picture this setting. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that might, they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. This action of the scribes and Pharisees is troublesome for several reasons. First, if this woman was caught in the act of adultery, where is the man? Moses calls for accountability for both parties. Second, why are they bringing her into the temple to put her on trial? The temple is not the place where this trial should happen. Third, why are they bringing her to Jesus? He does not have standing within the ruling body of the Jews, nor would they grant him such a position. So, even if the woman is in fact guilty, and it appears that she is, their action amounts to theatrical sham. Our text reveals their real motive for this abusive behavior. They are putting Jesus to the test. If he declares the woman guilty and thus deserving of stoning, he runs the risk of alienating sinners like her who have found forgiveness and restoration through him. Further, he runs afoul of Roman law, which reserves death penalty trials to Roman authorities. If, on the other hand, he balks at punishing her, he appears to condone adultery. So, in order to undermine the popularity of Jesus, to have something to charge against him, they publicly shame this woman in front of the crowd at the temple. Their self-promoting power play thinks nothing of treating her this way. They are not trying to solve her sin problem. 
They are just trying to get at Jesus. The woman is just cannon fodder. And they do all this pretending to be conscientiously protecting and promoting the law of Moses in the Scriptures. Their tactics reveal abusive wickedness whitewashed as righteous devotion. Their hatred of Jesus made them harmful to people who needed their concern and care, but that did not bother them any more than their conspiracy to murder Jesus pricked their conscience. They were conscientious about tithing spices, while at the same time they're conspiring to commit murder. And when the public trial of Jesus came about, they would be worried about defiling themselves by entering Pilate's hall of judgment, would be perfectly willing for Jesus' blood to be on them and on their children. Notice finally that Jesus did not give in to their tactics. He has perfect knowledge of what they are doing. I mean, if you're going to try to fool someone and trap them, Jesus is the wrong target. He knows you better than you know yourself. And other human beings may go along with the charade, but God is not mocked. And this is the great danger of hypocritical living in a seared conscience. You can't ever fool God, and He runs the universe. So what are some examples of paying great attention to the law or the rules while hiding wicked motives and practices. And as you think about those examples, you can probably think of things in your own life, not just the lives of other people. And what happens to you or any person when you develop the habit of pretending to be righteous while you are practicing evil? And in what ways are people around us injured when we live in this hypocritical way. I don't think there's, there's not a year that goes by that I don't hear horror stories of damage done to people from those who were pretending to be righteous and were wicked as the devil himself at home and, and in places where they thought they could get away with it. Besides seared conscience, we also see guilty conscience portrayed here in verses 7 through 9. As they continued to ask him, so they continued to badger him, he, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. The initial reaction of Jesus to their badgering him to pronounce judgment against this woman is silence. Sometimes that's the most powerful response, silence. He knew full well the whole thing was a setup, and they knew that he knew. That's what his silence conveys. His silence is an eloquent rebuke for their hypocrisy, their hatred bent on murder, and their abuse of this woman who needs restoration with God. Jesus stoops and writes on the ground. John doesn't tell us what he wrote. I think we all are curious. You know, maybe that's why it wasn't included in the oldest manuscripts that we found. I don't know. It bugged them that he didn't. No, I'm just making that up. Don't even say that I said that. Okay. We're all curious about it. 
If it were important for us to know what he wrote, John would have told us. In fact, that it says that when they heard what he said, that's when they started to leave. We don't, we don't even know that his enemies knew what he was writing. But they have no trouble imagining, as we have no trouble imagining, what he might be writing, like the sins of those bringing the accusation. That could explain what he says when he finally does speak, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He lets conscience, guilty conscience, do its work. The impending stoning is over. Not one stone flies because not one of the accusers is without sin, and they know it. One by one, they leave, beginning with the oldest. They, they know all too well how guilty before God they are. They've lived long enough to have disappointed even themselves many, many times. To shame another human being this way conveys that somehow they want to portray themselves as above sin, and they knew otherwise, and Christ knew otherwise. It also reveals that they had no concern whatsoever about seeing this woman recovered from her sin. They were just using her to trap Christ. How different from what Christ expects from his followers. Paul talks about it in Galatians 10, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that is, you are empowered, motivated, in line with the Spirit of God, you that are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. The reality is that even those with seared consciences know they are sinners. They leave because their own consciences condemn them. They leave, dropping their effort, but never sadly actually repenting of their sin. It remains on their account. Who will free the consciences of this woman's accusers from their own guilt burden? Outing others for their sin will not cleanse my own sin. We often try to excuse or cover our own sins by pointing out the sins of others. That's, that's famous. We start doing that as kids, and we don't stop as adults. They hate the only one who can actually clear their conscience. Their whole system of religion was built on not actually being right with God, but on appearing righteous before men. And like this trial, theirs was a sham righteousness. Even those with no exposure to the Scriptures have a conscience regarding good and evil and know they will stand before God. Romans 2 tells us when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. They are a lot of themselves, even though they do not have the law. They, they show that the law, that the work of the law is written on their hearts because they're image bearers. They're made in God's image. While their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Jesus won't judge just religious people. Jesus will judge all people. And Jesus sees 
where all people actually are. He knows where the guilty conscience is. So, so what sin guilt are you carrying but leaving unattended? And what sins of others distract you from dealing with your own sins? I mean, it's classic, right? When we're hearing a message, we think, oh, this reminds me of so-and-so, and this reminds me of so I wish they were here to hear this. Well, you're here to hear this, you know? I'm here to hear this. This is for us. And since you know that Jesus knows exactly what's going on in your life, what do you know you should do with your guilt? I know something you shouldn't do is walk away without dealing with it. And finally, we see a cleared conscience here. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. There's a lot left unsaid in this exchange, but it's nonetheless clear what is going on in this woman's life. Those that condemned her are gone, but more importantly, Jesus declares, neither do I condemn you. Now, it seems from the text that that the woman was not falsely accused. She had committed adultery and been caught in the act. So, how can Jesus say this? The only reason Jesus can say this, the only basis on which he could say this, has to do with why he was on the planet in the first place. He's going to the cross to pay for our sins so that we could be forgiven and that those who are repented and trusted in him could be rescued. This woman, in fact, reminds us of another woman with similar sin that Jesus met at the well in Sychar. She had a heart open to the Messiah, more open than the religious leaders, and God freed her from her sin, and God showed her that He knew all about her sin. Well, this woman's conscience was still sensitive, and she has responded to her guilt in the right way. For Jesus to say that He does not condemn her indicates that she has humbly confessed her sin before God and has been forgiven, and her calling Jesus Lord conveys that she sees Jesus as her new master, that sin no longer rules, that Jesus has broken its grip on her. His final words to her are to go and sin no more. Jesus is not saying that it's no big deal to commit sexual sin. He's saying it doesn't have to be the end of your story. There is cleansing for every kind of sin, including adultery His power in a person's life is greater than the power of sin. And I just want to say, you know, we live in a a sex-obsessed culture, and, and many a believer has been dragged into that culture and suffers great guilt. The power of the gospel, the power of Jesus, is greater than the power of sexual sin. Let Jesus cleanse you and clear your conscience. 
Her obedience to His command from now on sin no more demonstrates He not only sets our conscience free from sin, but breaks sin's power over us. With our consciences cleansed, we can finally live free. When a person is burdened with a guilty conscience regarding unconfessed sin, sin maintains its tyranny, its death grip. It pushes us to despair. It cripples us. When Jesus removes our guilt and cleanses our heart from sin, we are set free to live in His power in obedience to Him. And that's exactly what Jesus did for this woman. That's what the gospel of Jesus does for any of us who come humbly to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. I wonder whether an occasion like this was on John's mind when he wrote those words in his first epistle. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, everything that doesn't meet a standard. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We can almost see this woman with conscience cleared in contrast to her accusers, whose sin remained on their account because they did not own up to it, even though they knew themselves to be guilty. So what would it do for your spirit if your own conscience were cleansed from sin and cleared from guilt? Jesus has the power to do that. If you've confessed and been forgiven of your sin, what does Jesus command from now on, sin no more, tell you about his will for you going forward? You're no longer sin's slave. Stop serving sin. It doesn't own you. Jesus does. Follow him. Since Jesus not only commands his followers but empowers them, what are ways you can leave sin's tyranny over you in the past? Some of you are still tormented by sins you committed decades ago. Why? Why? Did Jesus cleanse you or not? Is his power sufficient to free you or not? Why be tormented any longer? Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and religion that does what these guys did in the temple, they're just Satan's henchmen. But Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. From now on, sin no more. Romans 8 says it this way, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us who walk, who live our walkabout life, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It is an amazing, miraculous gift from Jesus to have a conscience set free. What is the state of your conscience today? Is it seared? Is it guilty? Or is it cleared? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of it, and thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the way he cuts through the smoke and mirrors. Thank you for the way he he confronts hypocrisy. Thank you for the way he deals with life as it really is. Thank you for the way he shows compassion on those that that have been destroyed and, and tyrannized by their sin. Thank you, God, that he rescues sinners like us, that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and that his sheep hear his voice and follow him. Oh, God, may we hear his voice and follow him today. And, Lord, I pray for those here today whose consciences have them buried in despair, whose whose consciences are tormenting them, I pray, dear God, you would free them as you freed this woman. Lord, I pray for those with consciences seared, who sin right and left and wipe their mouth as if they've done nothing wrong. Oh, God, may your silence, may your person, may your statement awaken their guilty heart that they might be set free. For it's in Christ's name we pray.